everyone and welcome to the EdTech Podcast. Strap yourselves in as this week we've got a bumper episode on artificial intelligence in education. As we know, on the one hand, learning could be more personalised to suit our needs and we know that humans get tired, grumpy and have certain bias when marking papers or inputting data. We just aren't that good at doing these kind of tasks at scale. Or is that just me? But... On the other hand, artificial intelligence can rank us, can decipher our worth based on metrics not on our intrinsic human value, and can, in some scenarios, which us humans set up, report all the bad stuff back to our parents or prospective employers. So, do we fully understand the implications of these future scenarios on us as curious learners or well-loved colleagues? Let's find out! To kick off this week, I reached out to Sir Anthony Selden, VC of the University of Buckingham, who has just launched the Institute for Ethical AI in Education, along with sector colleagues. Now, what I love about speaking to Sir Anthony Selden is that he is always on the move. So here he is negotiating Trafalgar Square while speaking to us on the EdTech podcast. I'm very pleased to have Anthony Selden on the line, who, as well as being the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Buckingham, is also the co-founder for the Institute for Ethical AI in Education. So, Anthony, welcome. Lovely to be on the programme. First up, what is the Institute for Ethical AI in Education? Well, it's a long name, isn't it? So, what we're doing is we're looking at education specifically and the way that AI, artificial intelligence, that's going to come into schools more and more over the next 10 years, the way that we can safeguard the interests of children and also teachers and also schools overall and make certain that AI really is a benefit to all children, particularly the most disadvantaged and ensure that the bad side of AI, which includes uh, invasion of privacy and uh, sexual predatory uh, behaviour, that these dangers and risks are minimised. And how does the Institute sit alongside, for example, the Education Committee or the Artificial Intelligence Committee within Parliament? So we have a lot of bodies at the moment which are interested in education, vast numbers. We have a lot that are interested in artificial intelligence and also mixed reality, virtual reality, etc. But very few, which are like none at all, which are specifically geared to be looking at the risks, but also the, the, the benefits that uh, children, students can have from uh, AI. Because AI, look, Children are, are under very su- substantial risks at the moment from social media, from digitalization, where sinister individuals and, and companies can prey on them and parents, families, schools don't know what's happening. AI is going to take the sophistication and the risks to far, far higher levels. Mm. You could have, for example somebody uh, looking like the head teacher appearing on the screen of, of a student, telling them to do dangerous, immoral things. You can have a, another kind of adult appearing who will know all about the child and gain the child's trust and inveigle them into uh, risky and, and predatory or other uh, socially dangerous or unacceptable behavior. 
So we just have to be very smart here. And at the moment, nobody is gripping it. The country is obsessed by uh, Brexit uh, as if it's all that mattered and very real uh, dangers, including global warming, but also AI are not being given sufficient attention, particularly AI in education. So that's really, really interesting because I've kind of talked on the program before about you know, inbuilt bias in terms of artificial intelligence development uh, with regards to learning platforms. But I hadn't really thought about, you know, the equivalent of your Obama's like Obama, and you can only tell that it's not when you dig into the metadata. But then imagining that as someone that could delve into the psyche of a student and then, you know, help to uh, mobilize them to do something that otherwise perhaps they wouldn't is, is yeah, it's quite the terrifying end of it. It is. I mean, terrifying is precisely the right word. So if we can have a face looking like Obama in 2018, sounding like Obama, but not being Obama, think where we'll be in just five years time, where the face on a child's screen will not be Obama, but will be, for example, their English teacher. And the English teacher is going to be saying to them that, uh, you know, do this or do that. And the English teacher will know the child, because it's easy to delve into that child's background and to find out what are the triggers that this face is going to need to say to gain the trust of of the child. So I I want to say to you that there are glorious benefits from AI, which will bring such advantages in depth of learning and experience. But we need to have better ethical codes and we need to watch out for companies which could otherwise strip schools of their inequality as out-of-town shopping centres have done to many town and, and village communities across the country, making a lot of money for the big companies, but somehow sacrificing life and experience for those who are have to go about their ordinary lives. So we just need to be careful. That's what the Institute is, is about. That's what I'm trying to achieve with Professor Rose Luckin and Priya Lakhani of Century Tech. You mentioned sort of the ethical parameters and putting in some boundaries and what kind of practical actions would you like to see come out of the Institute? Okay, so we are going to have a member of the House of Lords, Tim Clement-Jones, who is acting as the chair, and we are going to be reporting in December 2020. So it's hard to say exactly what we're going to be coming forward with there, but I would imagine it's going to be some very strict guidelines on the way that children at school, students more generally, that their lives can be intruded upon by AI, codes about the manufacturers of AI material, uh, ways in which small and large companies operate, and a completely new level of awareness amongst all those involved in education about what the risks are so that then we can harvest all the benefits. So I think that we have an an extraordinarily difficult challenge. Uh, And if then the response is to say this is too difficult and we're not going to try to have any ethical uh, framework guidelines, then I think that is a council of despair. And I think that we're going to be moving much closer to the world that 
was envisaged by Stephen Hawking in his final book when he says that AI uh, will be the last invention of mankind. We are in a, in a very difficult world, but one where we have to work together and internationally and with the United Nations to establish frameworks to protect humanity and to allow this wonderful invention of AI to benefit everybody. Absolutely. So I noticed you were the co-founder for Action for Happiness, which I absolutely love. And I was sharing some materials from there today with my friends. But my question was, do you see a correlation between perhaps our, our struggle with happiness as a nation and the proliferation of technology and increasingly so artificial intelligence uh, in our lives? Like, How do the two interrelate? I think that the technology can be a very significant enhancer to happiness, uh, not the least in its ability to connect friends and, and family in virtual ways and to break down loneliness for uh, uh, for people of all ages uh, by being able to communicate in a very personal and, and intimate way with with others online. But clearly, one of the reasons, the reasons why depression, anxiety appears to be growing upon, among young people is social media, where opportunities for bullying others anonymously are given ample opportunity uh, and where uh, young people can feel excluded from social groups and are far more aware of it through social media. So what we have to do with AI again is to find ways to have this for the benefit of humanity. It requires human intelligence and empathy on an enormous scale if we are to ensure that this world, which is already a ponce, although many uh, in government don't realize that it is, at the gates of a very brave and very uh, large new world, and too many people don't even realize that we are at the very outset of a new era. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for for giving us your time today. It would be amazing if we could keep up to date with the Institute and and share that with our listeners as as it develops over the next couple of years. No, absolute pleasure, Sophie. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Okay. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. AI certainly gets people motivated to share their views, and another person who got in contact and wanted to share his thoughts on AI and education was Joe Fathery a listener and award-winning teacher with 30 years' experience who, among others like the CEO of WISE, is calling for a code of conduct for the development in AI for teaching and learning. I have Joe Fathery on the line and Joe has been a past guest on the EdTech podcast and a, a keen listener, so he, he listened in eagerly to the Saving Teachers Time episode previously uh, with Laura McInerney and co. And Joe, among roles with the National State Teacher of the Year Association in the US and also a past Global Teacher Prize nominee, has been working in education for 30 years and still a very passionate teacher and got in touch to talk with us 
about his thoughts with regards to artificial intelligence in education. So we thought we'd share those with this episode. And Joe, perhaps you can kick off with some of your thoughts around what's happening in artificial intelligence in education and what you'd like to see as things develop as well. Yeah, you know, first of all, uh, I want to share with you how excited I am about the potential new technology like AI and mixed reality have to transform education in a positive way. Up until now, I I think it's been unthinkable for teachers to have the ability to personalize learning in such a way that instruction is tailored to the specific needs of every child on the earth. I mean, just grasp that, that number. In addition, language barriers will soon be a thing of the past. Classrooms will become dynamic places where students can travel virtually between past, present, and future. Connectivity and collaboration between different people groups around the world will become the rule instead of the exception. And what a positive thing that is. And all of those things and many more, I I think, bring great hope to society. And as an educator, I, I really appreciate how the technology can and will be used uh, to close the achievement and equity gaps. However, uh, with all of that said, I, I really think we need to proceed with caution. You know, And by the way, I'm not the only one that feels that way. I think there are more and more leaders are starting to share their skepticism of current practices and are urging for more regulation. I, this year, I think, is apropos because it marks the 200th anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I think the following line for her work fits perfectly when we're discussing the integration of AI, AR, other forms of futuristic technology and education. And it goes like this. Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel. And I want you to just think about that. You know, whenever Dr. Frankenstein put this together, he had this vision about what his creation was going to look like and the benefit of doing so. And that's why he was working so hard on it. But at the end, it didn't turn out that way. And I, I think in the end, that's what we risk, uh, the creation of some dark form of what we originally hoped for. And as I stated earlier, I, I believe we need to move forward, but with a degree of caution. The decisions to move forward, I also think, don't just belong to the entrepreneurs and the programmers. I think practicing classroom teachers need to be involved intimately in the development of protocols and policies that will ensure the safety of children for generations to come. So that's kind of, you know, where I'm at on the front end. I don't want everybody to think, you know, hey, we have to be an alarmist of it. But I think we have to be a realist as to what the potential of this does for both good and for bad. I have a series of concerns that, you know, I get worried about when we start talking about the integration into the classroom and what effect it'll have on students and also about how people on the outside who are building this have very little access to the classrooms to know actually what's going on on a day-to-day basis. And what are some of those concerns then? And, and, and you know, um, with yourself as well, what are, what are you developing in terms of suggestions or protocols that with the other leaders around you that you think might help moderate how this is developed? Well, I think in the terms of concerns, I look at the anxiety and depression that students have today. And there have been reports out, uh, you know, I've looked at one from cyber psychology, behavior and social networking that suggested young people who are heavy users of social media spending more than two hours a day are more likely to report poor mental health and psychological distress symptoms, including anxiety and depression. In the United States, suicide is now the second leading cause of death for all Americans ages 10 to 34. The suicide rate has tripled in recent years for young girls. I want you to imagine, we're going to put our imagination hats on, and I'm not blaming, by the way, any form of technology 
that I'm about to talk about, but I think, you know, it gives us a starting base to think what this could look like. So if you're familiar with Magic Leap's augmented reality platform, imagine what it's going to be like when it becomes the norm. Will we see another major spike in anxiety and depression and suicide rates with technology that provides users with the ability to move yet farther away from direct social interaction with people? How will children respond to interacting with intelligent avatars like Magic Leap's Micah? Will they have the ability to understand the difference between fiction and reality? What impact will intelligent avatars have on children? We just don't know. Will they seek out the advice of humans during difficult times or will they default directly to avatars? You know, and to tell them exactly what they want to hear. How do we go back and reprogram those children who have went through this? The answer is we don't. You know, will the next generation of AI and AR systems provide marginalized children who have been bullied in, at school and struggle with mental health issues with a sandbox where they can skin avatars with images of classmates they hate and practice shooting up a school until they get it just right? You know, according to the Gun Violence Archive, there has been 307 shootings in the U.S. in 2018 in the last 311 days. I just I just want to think about that. And people tell me that's not going to happen. Well, this last year, we had a game roll out across that they tried to get moving in the U.S. called Active Shooter. That provided players with the ability to play the role of a school shooter and kill students and teachers. Mm. What What rules will guide the production of technology like that? You know, I think we just need to consider just because we can doesn't mean that we should. You know, there's questions arise about how connecting a person's mind to the cloud will affect the human psyche. Will it be a good thing to have an AI system recommending thoughts and information that can be easily accessed by truly being connected to the Internet? Do you own the IP that's stored on someone else's servers or do they? Does the company reserve the right to scan your memories? What happens to the data after you're deceased? The correct answer is no one knows. You know, I have major concerns about the AI monitoring system that is currently being developed in China. Uh, you know, the government's goal is to have 600 million. I just, just think of that number, 600 million cameras in place to monitor humans by 2020. And that's going to require an incredible, robust AI system to do that. And you think, well, that might not happen here. Well, there's an effort underway to bring that same type of technology to schools in the U.S., companies that are developing the technology are selling it under the guise that it makes schools safer. I argue the fact that we don't need more cameras. I think what we need is more social-emotional learning training, more, more mental health services, and we need to be proactive on the front end with our kids. If we're working with our children to help them develop appropriate behaviors, we're working to help grow the whole child, we address issues as they come then we're less likely to have these other issues down the road. And you know what? I'm not alone in this. Uh, Tim Cook, Apple CEO, came out the other day and said, I'm not a pro-regulation kind of person. I believe in free market deeply. But I think you have to recognize when the free market doesn't produce the result that's great for society, you have to ask yourself, what do we, what do we need to do that? And I think some level of government regulation is important to come out of that. So I think those things are really concerning to me. And the, and the big issue that I have right now is that very few classroom teachers have been invited to be a part of these conversations. Mm -hmm. And while I may not be a world-class programmer, I do know teaching and I know it very well. And I know a lot of other educators that do the same. And what we need to do is develop a partnership where the programmers and the entrepreneurs respect the teachers at the same level that we respect them at, and that we respect society and our children at a level that we have to sit down in all countries and start this conversation. So I know that's a lot, 
And, you know, I know a lot of these things won't may not come to pass. We don't know if they will or not. But I do know that once Pandora's box has been opened, it's not going to go hmm. back. And that's the thing that really concerns me. And I see this stuff being built even now. I can't argue with the loss of that, to be honest. And it was interesting. I saw the CEO of the World Innovation Summit for Education speak in Beijing, and he called for anyone developing AI tools in education to sort of sign up to a Hippocratic oath of, uh, you know, those tools being for the social good. I just wondered, you know, obviously I mentioned the um, Institute for Ethical AI in Education here. Are there sort of similar projects or initiatives happening in the U.S. as well? Well, they they are, and most of them are happening in higher ed. And I'm not really aware, and this could be true, so I, I don't want to say because I don't know yet, but I've done a lot of research. I can't find any active K-12 classroom teachers that are really involved in this at a level where they're helping drive the discussion with those few people that are leading these initiatives. And so while I'm really excited about the fact that, you know, there are different ethical education institutes popping up, I do believe one of the first things they need to do is go seek out really strong classroom teachers that have a vision and understand the implications this might have. And that's where I'm struggling at. And a lot of times you can't get people even to return your call because it's just like classroom teachers are not looked at typically at the same level as higher ed in many circles are definitely in the tech sectors. And I think that's something that's got to change. We've got to start having these open conversations and we got to, we have to start respecting the work of all those involved. And is your door open if people are listening in and uh, you could be one of those teachers? I would love to participate. <laughs> and I am also a connector and I, I definitely have a cadre of world-class teachers that would love to be involved in these conversations. So I appreciate the visionaries who are working on this, and I know what we would like to do is join hands with you and walk lockstep towards the creation of a tool that we can really help guide this work. Like I said at the very beginning, I am so excited, my goodness, as a classroom teacher, the potential this have has to really transform education. I talk about the fact that I believe in the very near future, a young lady from China is going to walk into my room and sit down, and she's going to start speaking in perfect English except it's going to be an avatar and there's going to be a language translator that's going to translate Mandarin to English and my English to Mandarin. And she's going to be able to interact with my students and my students with her in a way we never thought possible. And, you know, you start talking about the geopolitical health and something like that where kids can start talking and they can learn about differences and work together. All of those things are exactly where I think we want to go. But it also doesn't negate the fact we have concerns out there that need to be addressed at the same time. Fantastic. And and what about if people do want to connect with you and, and bring you on board some of those initiatives? Uh, how do they go about doing that? Well, there's a couple of easy ways. Follow me on Twitter at Joseph Fothery, uh, J-O-S-E-P-H-F-A-T-H-E-R-E-E. Or you can email me, josephfothery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And, you know, I also would love to hear areas that you don't agree with me at, because I think that's how the conversation gets started. And we can respect each other from the point of view we have, and then move forward to make something that's really working. Perfect. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much for having me on and for all the great work you're doing. It's against this backdrop of issues that this week we think about new models of learning driven by AI in adult education as part of our last feature from the UFI mini-series on upskilling.
Here's Liz Debris at the UFI Charitable Trust. So Liz, this week's episode is all about artificial intelligence in education, teaching and learning. And we've got so many contributors from those who have their concerns about how we make sure that's appropriate within an educational setting and those that are also talking about the amazing opportunities that artificial intelligence can bring. So what's your perspective, you know, looking from a a UFI charitable trust lens and all the projects that you see coming through, how do you view artificial intelligence with regards to adult education? Yes, that's a great question. So UFI is, as you know, is focused on the vocational learning for adults. So whether that be in the workplace or in college or when you're out and about, all sorts of different settings. So clearly we get to see lots of different technology come through, AI being one of them. And we're seeing it used in a number of scenarios and benefits coming through from that. So for example, we are seeing it used behind chatbots. So Bolton College have this chatbot they call Ada, and it enables students to ask it questions about curriculum. Um, But also our funding is uh, focusing on their work placements, how AI can help get information out around their work placement. So answer questions such as which students are on work placement next week, for example, or are all my students on track to get their UCAS points? So it's, it's adding that level of intelligence to to the information and the analysis of the data behind that sits behind the scenes I suppose I suppose what AI enables us to do is it it is that big big data piece and being able to process just on a sheer scale that would not otherwise be possible if we look at white hats white hat doing great things to really help people see the benefit of apprenticeships and find really good apprenticeships for them to take on. And they have a matching service and that's where they use their AI because they can process tens of thousands of applications. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I remember at your UFI showcase last year, I was chatting to someone and this young man came along. I say young man because I'm I'm very old now. And uh, he said, But what I'm interested in is, does this have machine learning? And that was, of course, you and Blair, the co-founder of White Hat. (laughs) So I can certainly vouch for the fact that he's interested. Yes, absolutely. And it's obviously it has it's having huge benefits in terms of the the way that it can match up the right skills. And of course, it's learning the whole time, which is great. And we've seen it in to give another example, Century Tech who I know you've spoken to, I think, in the past around their tech that they use in schools. And that enables you to track students' performance and where it's much more granular level that might otherwise be possible and to see where they could benefit from extra learning. But what the AI enables you to do, the intelligent bit, is setting out pathways that are going to be relevant or of most interest to those students. So Century Tech are looking at how they can apply that for an FE sector. How do we go about making sure that we're making the most of these technologies and implementing them in a way that has that impact that you're constantly measuring as well? Well, I think that's that's a really interesting challenge, and especially with artificial intelligence, because that element of trust that's required. And I think we've got a work 
cut out, really. We've got a lot of work to do to make sure that we, as a population, as educators, as learners, employers, adapt to how we use this technology to make it work for us. And we, I guess that's what our projects are doing. We're testing out different ways of learning. And as an organisation, UFI are always considering the ethics of various technologies and our role in ensuring that it's a safe technology for us all to use. And are you tapping into any of the kind of initiatives that are looking at ethics in AI and teaching and learning or education as well? So our board of trustees covers a diversity of backgrounds and includes Professor Rose Lucan, who is one of the leading AI experts in education. So as an organisation, we ensure we have our eye on the ball around the ethics, and the questions of ethics around AI. This being the last episode of our mini-series, do you have any kind of final messages for our listeners? Yes, you're, you're going to be speaking to Fluence, who I understand, who are um, also using artificial intelligence for grading. But if you want to find out more, visit our website, ufi.co.uk, and follow us on Twitter. We're at UFI Trust, and you can find out all about our, our projects and the work that we're doing. And when do your funding rounds start, Liz, as well? Yeah, so our next funding round will start in January. It's a seed fund that's for £50,000 up to a year. So we'll, we'll be holding workshops in the second and third weeks of January at various locations around the country. So check out our website and register to find out more information. Thank you. Turning to Fluence, what's the main aim of Fluence in adult education? So it started as an ambitious project to optimise the teaching of any vocational subject. So unlike traditional courses, a vocational qualification is based on making someone ready for a specific function. So can someone perform a specific role that an employer would be interested in? And we realised that despite a lot of effort going into literacy provision, we realised that it was generic. So someone might be doing a mechanics degree, but then their literacy provision had nothing to do with that mechanics degree. So we developed some technology that allowed us to map the mechanics qualification so that we could teach literacy that was very much specific to that course. And what that meant is that rather than spending 100 or 200 hours on the literacy journey, because it was specific, they could start operating independently with the specific language requirements of that course within maybe six to 10 hours. So it's a, it's a far greater return for something that traditionally not seen as part of the course. It's almost like a stumbling block before they get to the qualification. We're able to take the pain out of that. And it just so happened that this language mapping software we developed to do this mapping ended up being a lot more powerful than we realized. And we realized we could infer how well students actually understood the subject as well as what level of literacy they had. So now we've moved more into the helping educators diagnose needs to personalize the learning journey and actually benchmarking the performance of, of, of educators and making sure that they're delivering consistent grades and also helping people understand how to optimize the curriculum, you know, what actually matters to the employer at the end of the journey. So there's some of the things we're starting to develop using artificial intelligence and language mapping, as we call it. 
That's David Hoare, the Managing Director at Fluence, who aims to combine linguistics and AI to make human-like decisions about content. On their website, it states, Fluence technology is really, really smart, but it can't take over the world. It continues with, It just learns to recognise patterns in language that point to something you care about. This reminds me of current dialogues around useful recommendations versus the narrowing of our likes and dislikes through AI algorithms. Let's hear more from David to dig further. And I know we spoke about this previously and I think we were talking about the sort of 80-20 rule or Pareto's law or whatever it's called and and sort of uh, speeding up this idea of where to focus your learning, which I think anyone who's getting on in their years will completely appreciate because, you know, you can be the, the most motivated learner in the world, but we're all up against time constraints. Yeah, it's it, it's a fundamental difference between learning as a as an infant and learning as an adult. So as an infant, the more language you're exposed to, the better. So if your parents are using a wide range of vocabulary when you're two years old, you absorb that language and it becomes part of your vocabulary. Uh, So it's, it's sort of the opposite when you're an adult. So those processes stop happening when you get to sort of late primary, secondary school and adulthood. And so we have to get smarter about what we teach. The processes we use to teach children simply do not work for adults. And therefore, we're using the Pareto principle to optimize what gets taught because we just don't have time to teach everything. Uh, the, The other element of adult learning is that when you're teaching people, that there's a lot more room for confusion. So, for example, if you teach two words that sound the same, adults are a lot more susceptible to getting their threads crossed or whatever <laughs> whatever the analogy is. So what we're trying to do is avoid confusion. So if you imagine the, the classic there, there, and there grammar rule in school, children might be able to retain that. But anyone who's dyslexic or if you're teaching that to an adult – they will confuse them forever after learning that one grammar lesson. So in the sort of fluence and rapid English logic, we we realized that you could actually just run the numbers and and work out that their T-H-E-R-E makes up about 80% of all their usage. Mm -hmm. So we hit that one first (laughs) and in a lot of detail. And if they've completely understood that one, it makes it far easier to then introduce the next one without confusion. So we're sort of leveraging the frequency of language to to actually improve the quality of output and the the, the quality of teaching. I mean, that's really fascinating. And how do you explain the sort of technical underpinning of that? So you, you mentioned you use AI and natural language processing and so on, but Without giving away your, your your kind of secret sauce, how, how how do you how do you go about doing that? Well, th- this was half a million pounds in development at least until we got involved with the UFI Charitable Trust. It is a lot of work to isolate every single component of language that is used in any environment to then be able to run the numbers on how useful it is to a student. The The logic of it is quite simple. It's frequency analysis. A lot of organizations do this. But then the application of what's most useful and what's least useful, how can we work out what makes the difference between good performance and bad performance? They're all of sort of the the trade secrets that are within, within our organization. And they're actually the very same things that we use to help examiners produce 
better exams. Uh, it, it, it's, it's also how we help employers work out who is most knowledgeable out of the recruits that they're trying to hire. It's all very similar stuff. So so there's something in language called a, a language register. So it's the reason why I don't understand what my lawyer says. They have a far better understanding of, of law and therefore they use language in a way that is, is foreign to me. Two lawyers can understand each other because they share the same language register. And language registers converge. So when people get to a certain level of understanding, they start to use the same language. And we're able to tap into that to start saying, well, this person is operating above level three for mechanics uh, or for chemistry. Uh, And they're the kind of secrets or techniques that we use to try and infer quality. That reminds me of watching the BBC Parliament channel yesterday and uh, the use of the language register in in Parliament. And it's also a powerful tool, isn't it? It's a way of keeping the information within a particular group. It can be used for that. (laughs) There's a, you know, we do a lot of work in in the marketing space as well, auditing the quality of content. And actually, it's funny, if, if you're an expert in a field, you want to present some words that your clients don't understand to give your client a sense that you know something they don't. So it is definitely a badge of honor if you, if you can understand a, a language register. But in the adult education space, it can be a real problem because it prevents anyone with communication skills, despite having great manual skills or, or great aptitude for a particular job. It prevents them from demonstrating that to in an exam, for instance or to an employer during an interview. And if I'm an employer, how do you develop what you're doing to each individual sector? Do you tailor that individually to a specific employer or do you create a sort of overview for a particular industry? So the the most important thing about what Fluence does is to be specific. So A lot of work in the natural language processing space is based on large bodies of text. And unfortunately, then you lose all of the uniqueness of a a particular subject. So it becomes generic. And that's what we used to do, or we we still do in our literacy program. We, We targeted on a larger corpus that yielded communication across the board. But actually, the language is so specific when it comes to a specific job that you may only need... 90 to 100 words to understand 50% of a degree, for example. So if you can get specific with the subject, it actually simplifies the process. So it's it's absolutely critical. And and this ties in with a lot of the legislation and a lot of of work done by a lot of great educators in, in the UK with A, personalizing the learning journey. So we're actually getting specific about what we teach relative to what students want to know. But also... People get bored if they're being taught stuff that doesn't isn't relevant to what they're trying to learn. So we, we found that literacy is boring, not because people don't want to become literate. You know, we're doing a large project in, in, in the prison sector. They're bored of being taught stuff that doesn't seem relevant to their lives. So if if you can make learning very specific to the specific job they're trying to get, then you actually keep people much more interested in, in, in the process of learning. Uh, we're working on a really exciting project with uh, Novus, one of the largest education providers in the secure state, so the, the justice system and prisons in the UK. And we are working really hard to remove one of the biggest bottlenecks in the in the prison education system, which is reliance on, on structured end of 
course exams. And unfortunately, a significant number of prisoners, despite having done hundreds of hours of training, either transfer prisons or leave prison altogether or simply don't get onto the, the online portal for an exam. And they get no formal recognition of the work that they've been doing. So what we're trying to do with UFI Charitable Trust funding and our, our partner Novus is to automate the process of collecting evidence within those courses. Which, uh, So if we can capture the verbal communications of students talking about what they've been up to, if we can capture written work produced as part of the course and translate that into formal evidence of progression and using some human benchmarking to to guide the AI, we're hoping that we can start accrediting prisoners without the need for an end of year exam. And the exciting thing about this is it might double or triple the number of people actually receiving a qualification. And I've got to say the prison population is one of the most vulnerable populations in the UK. There's there's 85,000 people in a secure estate and they come out of prison marginalized with low prospects. It's already on their record that they've been in prison. So they, are, they tend to be less attracted to employers as it is. And they've got lower skills and no evidence of qualification. So if we can do something really powerful to improve the, the, the quantity and the, the number of prisoners exiting with a respected qualification, that can only be a good thing. But Novus is also part of Manchester College. So a lot of the lessons we're trying to learn in the prison system, we're also hoping to apply to wider vocational qualifications before extending it to sort of workplace training as well. And if people are listening in and, and finding this all very interesting, as am I, how do they get in contact with you and work out how they might be able to partner with you? Yeah, so we've got a, a sort of two-step policy, really. The first phase tends to be a pilot phase. So we work collaboratively with an organization to sort of prove the concept, to make sure the AI works within the space and to make sure that it's it's yielding results that are useful to, to humans on the ground. Uh, once that's been done, we can then roll that service out. So it tends to be a two-part service. If you're um, interested in, in setting up a collaborative pilot project, I mean, it's best to just go to the website, which is www.fluence.world and getting in touch with the team. The thing that's very interesting is that we, we tend to get a lot of very left field ideas, you know, things that I'd never heard of or problems I'd never even realized were a problem. <laughs> and we welcome them. And as long as sort of it fits in with our wider strategy of growth, then we're more than happy to consider them. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dave. It's been uh, really, really interesting. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the time. Thanks, David. Well, if that hasn't been enough AI and education content for you, then fear not. Go and check out our review of the AI and education panel from my recent trip to Beijing and all the case study examples of AI being used in terms of everything from forecasting, resource management and student engagement. Or just keep on listening as now we have the live podcast recording from our festival in September, hosted by the amazing Nate Langson, founder of the Wired podcast and current tech journal and deep thinker at Bloomberg, doing a smashing job at moderating. Enjoy. Um, 
Hello, good afternoon. It is the afternoon. Yes, it is the afternoon. So my name is Nate Langson. In the day, I am a technology uh, editor and journalist at Bloomberg News. And then by night and mostly evenings, I'm also a podcaster and I host a show I created called Text Message, which for the first time ever is projected in large letters above me, which is quite exciting. We're going to spend quite a lot of time today talking about how automation, and specifically artificial intelligence, is creeping more and more into classrooms and study halls. But what's on the horizon, and how do we make sure it's effective and not something we maybe look back on and see ourselves using learners as guinea pigs in an experiment that we maybe wish we hadn't done. So to have an interesting conversation, we need some interesting guests, and I'm lucky to have three of them here. I'm going to let them introduce themselves. We'll start to my right. Okay. Hi, I'm Cheska Ui, and I work for a company called Century Tech. Century Tech already produces a platform that has AI in it to personalise learning for students, and it gives the data insights back to teachers. I'm a former science teacher, but now I work in technology um, to sort of get it out there into schools and make sure it's being used effectively. Thanks, Jessica. Christina? Oh, hi, everyone. My name is Christina. Um, I've been living in Australia for the past 10 years, and I've only just been uh, moved back in UK in the last like, three weeks. So very excited to be here. Um, so I work in a company called Nevitas. It is an, a global education company. Uh, and we also just recently start our corporate venture um, called Nevitas Ventures. So that is to partner and also invest in those interesting high potential ed tech startups and, and business. Last but not least, Ben. I'm Ben Daboule. Um I was a school teacher, but I escaped and went back to university to do a PhD at the University of Edinburgh in the very, very early days of, of AI and started off in AI education back in the 1970s, doing stuff with Logo and primary school teachers. So I've kind of been both a teacher trainer and also a real teacher. And I've been really interested in issues around how we can get intelligent tutoring systems to act like humans as far as I possibly can. Jessica, let's start at the deep end. You've got a, a tool, a system that, that blends AI with classrooms. How does that work? That's a big question. Well, essentially, from a teacher's perspective, as that's what I was, and I was teaching science. So I had nine classes. Each class had around 25 kids or, or maybe more. What, what age group was this, sorry? I was in secondary, so year seven up to year 13. And I had to know for each student what they liked, what they disliked, how, how well they knew different aspects of the curriculum, how well they performed in different skills. And I had to then tailor my lessons for that. So that's before I had to then make sure that they were happy and everything like that. So what our system essentially does is provide the students with a supported way in which to learn parts of their different curriculum that they're exposed to and be supported in terms of the AI can work out what they should be doing next, whether it's to stretch them, whether it's to support them and go back and do a cross-curricular link. And as a teacher, I know exactly what they've been doing. So then I know how well they've been performing in different areas and actually where then I now need to intervene. So I definitely see our platform, although, yes, it's using technology and that's sometimes quite big and scary. Actually, all it's doing is making me better informed so I can do my job a bit better. And it's taking away some of that stuff that I really didn't want to do, which was give them a test, then mark it, then input the data, then see where the gaps are. Even then, I don't know particularly within a big topic where the gap was. And what's the interface for this? I mean, we talk about, you know, the interactivity between uh, teachers and, and students, but is this... Uh... 
on like a web interface? Is it some kind of device? Like, what is it? So it's an online platform. So essentially, um, if, you're, if you've got a web-enabled device, you'll be able to log in as a student or a teacher, and then you can see your data or your whatever you're supposed to be learning. So you can use it in the classroom if, you, if they have devices, um, or it can be a home learning tool. And then um, as long as you can get onto the internet, you can access it. So we've even people out in Dubai, and we're looking at going into the Lebanon um, to support schools who essentially have the internet so they can use us. You, uh, you were, a, were a science teacher, and a lot of the conversation around AI and automation sometimes focuses on the fact that it will potentially destroy jobs. Some studies say it will create more jobs uh, than it destroys, uh, but either way, some jobs will go away. So did you sort of duck out of teaching at the right point just before machines take over or do you actually see what you're doing as, as purely complementary and not replacing the uh, the fleshier educators of the world? Yeah I think yeah I don't think I ducked out because I thought something was going to take my job but um, it's definitely a thought that's out there that oh could we just teach just using online platforms but actually we know that teachers jobs are huge and that they don't just span the knowledge acquisition or just getting them to know this one thing um, it's so much more than that it's the communication all the different people you meet in school even if it's just your peers but that that quality of interaction the social and emotional development probably can't be replaced at any time soon by automation and that's where we really see yeah our tool as an, as an assistant to empower those conversations and empower teachers and students to know more about each other and and facilitate those conversations. Well, we're going to come shortly to talking about who's asking for this, who's investing in this in just a moment. But, but just before we do, Ben, like how can we be sure that, that systems like what Cheska's talked about and what you know exists in the market as well is able to adapt to individual learners as well as, as groups? You know, what's, what, what do we have to look out for there? Well, there have been quite a lot of studies of individual systems, and we've had enough studies of individual systems that people have written analyses of many studies and tried to see what the, the overall picture is. Like a meta-review sort of Like meta-reviews, yes. Yeah. So, and I've written a meta-meta-review uh, in the sense that I looked at the meta-reviews and tried to see the picture from, from the individual meta-reviews. And the picture is quite, quite positive. If you compare these systems with uh, what we might call ordinary classroom teaching, they, at least on learning outcomes, maybe not on the social and emotional side, but at least on learning outcomes, they do better. Okay? And they do better by about half a standard deviation or, or an effect size of 0.5, which, means, which translates into about 10 to 12% better on average for the kids in that class with, with a system compared with a, a classroom. But when you compare these systems with one-to-one -one human tutoring, they do worse. The, the skilled individual teacher with one child or with one, with, with one pupil does better than an AI and an ed system. And that's now averaged over, I think, something like 180 individual studies of systems. So we've got some reasonable grounds for optimism that they do they do, do okay, but the criteria that were used were essentially learning gains and not the other more intangible issues around that education also deals with. Yeah, and you touch on an interesting point there that, that I'll kind of come to later, but I'm going to do it now because uh, we basically just mentioned it, which is the, the, the fact that 
we do need to maintain a large element of human interaction, not just with children, but with older learners as well. Do you see it being a problematic that essentially we're saying that AI can be better than humans in a class environment? Yes, I can see, I can see it being problematic. Uh, it's problematic for a number of reasons. One is because it kind of implies that, that it's better than teachers in some general sense, as opposed to um, saying, well, actually, if we think of a teacher with 30 or more kids, managing those, the, the system, which is essentially one system per child, is doing better. That's not such a big deal. Um, uh, so, the, the, and there's a worry that put the politic, politicians will say, oh, well, in which case we don't need to pay, we don't need to pay teacher salaries, so we can just buy 30 of these boxes, and that'll be fine, and that's just ludicrous, of course. So it's like self-service checkout, but it's for self-service education. But who wants, you know, who, I always go to the checkout person, because I actually like the interaction, and I think the, the vision of schools where, well, maybe not even schools, some centre, a, a warehouse where kids are bused to, and they just sit at a screen all day for the, you know, every day, is it, it's, it's ludicrous. It's, you know, we have to put kids somewhere. We have schools for other reasons other than education, because their parents need to work. But the notion somehow that they can just be sitting at screens all day is just silly. And even at the present time, with, with lovely systems like Century, somebody has to manage the kids' interactions with Century, that, to introduce it, to make sure that they use it productively, to make sure they know what, how to reflect on what their experience was. So teachers have got a really crucial role. So I don't see this as AI and ed versus teachers. I see this as AI and ed plus teachers. It's an effective classroom assistant, in my view, where teachers can offload some work onto the system, not all of their work, but some work, while they get on with something else. And the something else that they get on with is crucial. Well, we'll come back to that point in, in just a moment, Jessica, because I just want to touch on the point that essentially what we don't want then are, are technologies that are, for want of a better expression, asking kids to put their study books in the bagging area and getting frustrated because that's incredibly annoying in shops, let alone in, in schools. So... Christina, when you're, as an investor, when you're looking at the market and, and the demand and the trends around all of these technologies, where are you seeing the, that demand coming from? And what, do people, what are people actually seeing as being the next, the next innovation that's going to help with all this? Um, yeah, so basically, just like um, probably a year ago, so we did a study on the around the global ed tech sector because we're trying to really understand what's happening in that sector. So we add, um, so we actually identify probably there are around like 6 billion USD investment that goes into those post-study area, which is like you know, career planning and also um, internships. Right, um, because um, from an um, educator perspective, because we also you know um, educate our university students, because we have clearly seen you know, there's a huge gap you know between what they've learned at university versus the, what they're going to do in their job, and also we see there's a big gap you know between the support that students they require to be successfully land a um, land a good job and post their graduation. So uh, we've seen a lot of like solutions just around the career and planning stage. Uh, so I guess this has typically moved you know, from, you know, um, when I was a student, I mean, and I have to rely quite heavily on those like website-based um, solutions you know, to get my career guidebook, but now into more um, those like one-to-one facilitation, you know, so um, like for um, example, Nevitas that we have invested quite heavily in those um, career planning and stage, so that one company that we invest in, they're actually, um, they're building a platform 
that uh, university, they can, you know, plug into their career services. So basically, they provide loads of contents, you know, for students to navigate through, you know, how they you know, should um, discover their career based on what, um, based on what they've learned, uh, and also, you know, based on, you know, and their CV letters, and how they should, you know, draft those. And then until, and, and they can also, you know, based on their student, their experience and what they're interested in, to help them to match with those um, industry experts, um, Network. This reminds me a little bit, sorry to interrupt, but it reminds me a little bit of when I was at sort of secondary school in the sort of mid late 90s that you, you sort of put in your interests and it would say, oh, you should go and be a policeman or you should go and work in the army or you should, and I'm not kidding, once a career advisor told me I should consider being a career yeah. advisor because I didn't fit the pigeonholes. They, they said that to me too. Did they really? <laughs> I inputted music and psychology and got music psychologist. That's amazing. That yeah. my, my I'm interested career. in uh, veterinary care and nursing. Mm. Be a vet nurse, uh, which is uh, what my wife is, in fact. So I assume that isn't what we're talking about here. It's a much more advanced, data-driven, informed service that isn't going to tell someone interested in music and psychology that they should be a music psychologist. So, um, so I think that would be two components play into it. So one is uh, really based on the data driven, you know. So you basically you have to answer lots of questions, you know, and based on this like huge database and trying to you know, um, figure out what you are good and what you are not uh, so good at. And then the other thing is, as we just touched before, that we have to bring those human components into it. So because you know, by leveraging you know those industry expert. So basically students that they can actually have those very interactive sessions with those people who are actually working in that field. So by talking to them, they can actually really understand you know, what they are searching for. So I guess like for those technology, they can actually really bring you know, those experts and alumni and, and also the students they all together. So like Previously, you know, they probably have to, you know, try very hard to connect each other. But now, because we have this like, huge database and have this like huge network, it just become much easier to communicate. So yeah. we've got we've got these technologies. We have to get people to want to use them, Jessica. People have to want to use these technologies. You create one of them. So if you were going to university, for example, let's say Ben was in charge of deploying technologies, how do you convince Ben that what you've created is A, good for students, and B, not going to steal his job? Good question. So I think that one of the big things we come across in schools is that the, the technology that they might use may be great and maybe have so much research behind it and, um, and somebody's really thought about it to develop in a great way, but it's given to them, they're given a login and great, off you go. That's where the issue lies. There's no one there to sort of say, oh, but why are we using this? How, how should we be using this? And we know that teaching an individual or teaching a class looks very different if I've got my top set year eight and my middle set year eight. Like, my lessons look very different. So why would I not use this technology slightly differently? And why would I not tailor it in how I use it? So what we do is go to schools and understand them and understand their situation, their students, their devices they have, and, and then work with them and say, like, so what, how do you want to use this technology? Um, how could it help you? And what, what solutions could we actually bring? And then we'll work on a consistent way of using this, because obviously if you try and implement anything across a secondary school that's inconsistent, all the kids know how to sort of work out a way around it. Yeah, I remember doing that. <laughs> so, um, exactly. So if you have a consistent way of doing it, actually they 
they see the benefit of it as well and they understand why they're doing it. And I think that's a big thing, um, why you're doing it at the outset. Same as we kind of try and promote why do you even need to bother learning on the platform is the massive step you need to take before you will then use it or, and do anything about it because you care. Because the teachers, they care, but they only care about using something as a, as a tool if they, if they invest in it. Ben, I read a paper that you authored relatively recently, and you talked quite interestingly about how, in a way, these conversations aren't new. They've been going on for quite some time. I wonder if you could expand a little bit on how this, is, this conversation has developed over the last many years. Well... These sorts of systems, like like Century, were starting to be built in the very end of the 1970s. This is kind of like pre-internet, pre-personal computers. Um, and they were massive enterprises of programming by virtuoso individual programmers, which would work in one particular location, and once that person moved on, the system would just die the natural death of any large software system which isn't maintained. So they kind of were, were built, they, they were tried out on, on a few kids, and then they died. What we have now is the fact that we have the internet, we have many tools to help build these systems, and although they're still virtuoso pieces of design work, we've got, we've got ways of doing that now that we didn't have in the very early days. In the early days... You would recognise to some extent that what the systems were like. They individualised their interactions with the pupil. They tried to help where they could. They often would allow the person to type in in English or whatever language it was, a query or whatever. Uh, they would ask it. They would ask in English. But the other parts of the interface, the screens, you know, we we didn't have the whizzy screens that we have now because because that's all developed over over the last 20 or 30 years. So in the very early days, the guts of the systems were actually rather similar, but the outsides of the systems were completely different. It's interesting you mentioned language, actually, there, because one of the points I was going to ask the, the whole panel is that often when we talk about AI, we talk about it in the context of STEM subjects, uh, and, and in particular technology, and I think in particular mathematics. That's not always the case, I believe, and language, I think, is one area where AI is proving to be very effective or is showing signs of being? Uh, that's, that's, that's for all of you to comment on. It's less a question, more a statement. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, I mean, we have key stage two learners, so in primary school, using our platform to learn about SPAG, so all your spelling, punctuation, grammar skills, as well as reading skills, because actually without the skills, it is quite hard to access um, sort of higher level texts and things. And even the secondary school students actually use some of our key stage two content on the platform because we realise actually they need to go back and review those skills and then fast forward to GCSE we have English literature, English language because there are elements that you can learn independently and that's essentially what you do in our system and then it, it shows you where else to go. So it is definitely not just a, a maths and science thing even though yes we're, we're championing technology it, it, it is used everywhere we use technology in sort of every aspect of our lives now. Ben, yeah, sure. We've still got a long way to go with AI in building systems that can actually have a conversation like this. There are systems that can do reasonably well on fixed topics over short durations and can, can kind of fool you that they're intelligent over that kind of time scale. But to actually, you know, meet a stranger, go through the rituals of, as well, how are you, this is who I am, who are you, 
actually have the kind of conversation that even three-year-olds can manage is actually beyond the state of the art at the moment. So if you think about the way that the language is uh, applied in schools, kids trying to explain something that they only half understand themselves, so their language is, you know, that they use the wrong words, their sentences aren't proper sentences, or we, none of us speak in proper sentences. We might write in them, but we don't speak in them. That's very difficult for a system to actually understand. And likewise, although a system can generate language very well, and even, even we don't all have to sound like Daleks now with computer-based systems, for the system to understand what the, what the student is saying or what the student's explanation is, is actually they can do it up to a point, but it's still fragile. And so we shouldn't, in terms of actually, if we wanted to learn French in a conversational way, that's going to be quite difficult. We can learn French with Duolingo, but what that's doing is it's teaching you how to say particular words or very short phrases. It's not actually teaching you to have a conversation in French. That's somewhere yet to go. Do you see demand, Christina, for, for these, kind of, these kind of systems, Lang, you know, language-based solutions? I hate using the word solutions. <laughs> I sound like a salesperson. But do you see a, a demand for that kind of thing? Yeah, so um, so we quite often that we come across those like um, language learning uh, application, um, especially you know uh, for those they are building those um, application you know, to teach those non English speaking um, people, right? And then some of them they do you know use AI in that technology. I think that's probably more in the way that you know to correct those students that you know, their pronunciation and probably identify there's a particular deficiency in their grammar. But um, I completely agree on Ben's point because so far we haven't really seen much technology that will be really generated a very meaningful conversational thing. I think that more um, just in terms of this like short phrases and um, really help you to um, correct your pronunciation. Yeah, so I, so I think in that space, still have a way to go. And also, you know, for them to bring this one into the market, so they do have to, you know, collect, like, loads of, um, low, like, loads of data um, and also probably um, record like, many of those, like, um, native English-speaking um, people, how they pronounce it, and, to, and can really train the machine to, to do it. Yeah. So it's a hard work. No, I'd just like to come back on this issue about why AI and education systems have tended to work in STEM subjects and not really branch out into... In, in, into, into art subjects, essentially. It's because they're designed to try to have a really detailed overview of what the student is doing and to help them with their problem solving at a very fine-grained level. Not just, is your answer right or wrong, but is this step a good step to take towards that answer? And in order to do that, they have to have a theory of how that particular domain hangs together. They have to understand physics, or they have to understand the maths, or they have to understand the mechanics. For philosophy or for English literature, there isn't a model of English literature that you can, you can build into a computer such that you do problem-solving in literature. So that's why they've tended to operate in a particular sets of subjects, because actually those subjects allow you to build a model of the subject and also to build a model of the student's acquisition of the knowledge and skills in that subject which is much harder in social sciences and arts and humanities. It's interesting because I, I studied uh, philosophy at A-level and we would go through what is a fairly traditional class of, uh, sort of course of moral dilemmas. You know, a train's going down a track, it can go two ways. On, on one track is, a, is a, an infant and on the other track is someone who's homeless. Argue which way you should intervene to send the track to. And a computer 
the, I mean, it might be quite terrifying that a computer would make that decision based on on what? On the baby's potential value to society, the the homeless person's value is. I don't even know. I don't want to be offensive, but you know, like it's quite terrifying in a way. I guess why it sticks to maths all of the time. <laughs> well, I, I think in general, you know, with all of the other areas of AI outside education, it, it is terrifying where people defer to the system rather than saying the system is going to give you some advice. You know, the system says, based on my analysis of trillions of, of bytes of data, I believe you should do this. Not that it's going to do it. It says, look, that's my view. You're the human. You take the decision. I'm only giving advice. And the trouble is that, that people defer to computers these days. You know, that, that you know, your mortgage is, is, is likely to have been decided by a computer, whereas actually it should be decided by the, the bank manager. You know, he can use or she can use the computer to help. Shouldn't be the computer deciding. And we've kind of lost track of, the, of what agency as humans we have in society and have allowed systems to overstep themselves. In medicine, for example, it's great that computers can do sometimes better diagnosis than doctors, but nobody is suggesting that it should be the computer that makes the final decision about whether to operate or not. The so doctor has to do that. And we need to make that, keep that balance in mind. I'm really worried about the way that AI is treated like a kind of all-seeing God that we should just sort of bow down before, even though I've worked in AI for, well, actually, because I've worked in AI for 40 years, it shouldn't be like that. Well, we've got time just for one last topic before we get dragged off stage by the metaphoric walking stick from this chap uh, sitting here. So we, we talk about technology, we talk about the classroom, there's a debate going on as to whether kids, particularly children, have too much technology, whether classrooms have too much reliance on tech, and if, and if that is true, that it reduces their ability to have natural human interactions that help them with social skills, uh, with just how to simply talk to one another. So I want to just close on that point with a, a point perhaps from each of you as to how you think we maintain that balance between a reliance on computers, but a, you know, a fundamental desire to still talk to our fleshy cousins. <laughs> yeah, I think in, in schools it's really hard because kids are really engaged with their phones, sometimes more than they want to be engaged in your lesson. So actually what I've seen in schools anyway and going around to lots of them is actually having a real attitude towards using technology in the school that's part of your policy. So actually one school had a, we use our phones for learning. So they said, so they're basically building those digital skills in their students of how to use your phone probably as a business person as well. So you can schedule when your homework's due, you can um, take notes at sort of allowed times and things like that. So actually building those digital skills for, for students to understand why you might use this technology to help you and, and when it's less appropriate to use is actually building that ethos in them to go into whichever career they go into because that, that is actually something that will, a real skill that they're going to need. It's a good segue for Christina, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I would always think that um, technology should always be used as an as a enabler to, you know, to improve the classroom and, and, and also to improve the student learning outcome. So um, I think probably a good way to do it to balance this um, human contact and also technology because I think you know, when the student they're trying to learn the technology, it will be always you know, better to put them in a group. So they can always you know, try to learn from each other and try to um, collaborate and to solve um, something all together you know, through technology. So I think you know, 
that's the way. So um, they can be both digitally savvy and, and also know how to work with each other. Ben, you get the final word. I think in the UK, schools aren't really very relaxed institutions at all. We've managed to get ourselves into a situation where teachers and head teachers are driven by government edict to behave in particular kinds of ways. They're testing the kids the whole, the whole time. There are league tables. It's, they aren't really places for relaxed education, as I see it. And I really fear that adding more technology in, there won't be the time for the fleshy interactions that you like. I'm always amazed when my colleagues who are interested in using computers for collaborative work say, ah, but we can get kids in in Shoreditch to work with kids in Finland. But why don't they just work with the kid in the next door desk? That would be really good. What a soundbite to end on, ladies and gentlemen. Ben, Christina, Cheska, thank you so much for being here. Uh, And thank you all for listening intently. Uh, Please give these guys a round of applause. Thank you. very much for listening everyone two things one if you like this podcast it would be amazing if you took two minutes to subscribe wherever you may be listening and you can do that on itunes or spotify or stitcher two if you like this podcast share with your work colleagues or that nice person you met at an event last week or leave us a review so others can find us we've got nearly 2,000 people listening to every episode now and we'd love to keep growing who listens in and how we can connect you all And if you don't like the podcast, pretend I never mentioned anything and let's both walk away in an awkward silence. No hard feelings. Goodbye.